10 years, 17, 12 years, and I would like, if I may, to take you on a very strange journey. Welcome to Nine Cents. Nine Cents is a satanic perspective of our modern world, and I'm your host, Adam Campbell. Today, I'm being joined by Jesse from I Dream of Jesse. How are you, my dear? Doing great. How you doing? Pretty damn good. And it's great to have you, the audience. It is February 1st, and we have a great show for you planned this week. So, in The Devil's Advocate, we're going to talk a little uh, 5.5. Five points? (laughs) <laughs> pentagonal revisionism is what I'm getting at, but specifically point five of pentagonal revisionism. Uh, in the Infernal Informant, two articles after finding a loaded gun in mother's purse, Arizona toddler shoots both parents. And California is raising the legal smoking age from 18 to 21. And of course, Jesse is in the house. So we got an I Dream of Jesse, episode 22. What is this one called, Jesse? Big Shot. Big Shot. All right. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, before we dive into the show proper, last week I got a bunch of, uh, uh, first of all, thank you for everyone that reaches out to us uh, because of a show or just because you want to talk to us or or give us your opinions about a topic covered in the show. We really do appreciate it. It's really nice. I got a lot of commentary from last week's and I don't think, I don't think I was as clear as I could have been. And so without getting into a big long thing about it, I do want to make sure everyone understands that because I enjoy something or because one of the contributors or any other Satanist enjoys something does not mean it's inherently Satanic, nor does it mean that we see it as Satanic. I think that idea could have been gleaned from last week's episode, and that is not what I meant uh, if that is what you took away from it. So I enjoy a number of activities, none of which, I'm sorry, the majority uh, of all of them I do not consider satanic. In fact, for me, much as Satanism isn't just atheism, there's something that makes it Satanism that's different. It's the worshiping of oneself, the empowerment, the acknowledgement of one's authority over one's life, utilizing the tools that Satanism provides you, lesser and greater magic, in order to uh, dominate your own life. Having that sense of aesthetic So whenever I'm applying that rationality to activities in my life, only a a handful of them crop up as being particularly satanic. And then it's usually because I'm doing something specific that makes it that way. So again, Britney Spears, no, (laughs) not fucking satanic in the least. I, I just cannot even imagine how that was put out as an idea, but, uh, You know, it's how you own something and how you change it inherently and how you emotionally connect with it that, in my opinion, is what makes something satanic or not. Okay, so I just want to make sure that's clear. Um, Did you get anything weird from that from last episode, Jesse? Have you listened to that episode? Mm, Yeah, I'm about two weeks behind on episodes. Oops. All right. Well, when you catch up, you'll (laughs) first time you ever (laughs) asked me, hey, did you listen to last week's episode? (laughs) Damn it. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, no, I, I definitely, I love it. was really great. That thing you said, that was, it really hit home. <laughs> Loved it. <clears throat> Best episode ever. Uh, okay. So this past week, did you do anything fun? No, I've been so freaking far behind on everything. <laughs> Damn. No time for love, Dr. Jones. My goodness. Well, I did have a pretty damn good sit thing happen here. So I've been uh, I've been thinking about burlesque a lot. <laughs> and why wouldn't you? Fucking... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because I'm a man who likes women who loves burlesque. Um, and I so I just did this random search to see if there were any burlesque performers in the greater Salt Lake area. And there just happened to be one this last Friday. And so I reached out to a couple of local Satanists and I asked them, you know, just gentlemen who I enjoy hanging out with on a one-to-one level uh, <laughs> and ask them and their ladies if they would like to join me and my lady to uh, a burlesque show. And in my head, I'm thinking that because it's called a burlesque show, it's going to be like my perfect imagining of a burlesque show and not the reality, which is the performer's imagining of a burlesque show. I like the 1920s burlesque. I like the black and white, thicker women dancing around burlesque and we did have the thicker women which was fantastic of course you know i mean all shapes and sizes were present so it wasn't one or the other particularly but they did it it was uh themed burlesque so it was all to uh hollywood songs um only a couple of which i really personally connected with but the dances were less burlesque and more performance which you could argue burlesque is performance, but it's a niche. There's specific traits, and I don't think just stripping down to pasties is it. I think it's a little bit more than that. And uh, these girls were pretty much just dancing, and then the last two seconds would rip off their bra if they even got that far and shake pasty titties, and that would be the end of it. So I was a little bit disappointed. Again, the company made it worthwhile. The venue itself, though I heard was a good venue, uh, there was very, very limited seating, and I don't like standing around like I'm at a concert with a beer in my hand while I watch something like burlesque. I think it demands a little bit of relaxation and patience on on the uh, viewers' you know, side of things. It, I don't know. It was it was a really weird setup. Ultimately, it was pretty cool. You can't really complain about burlesque in Salt Lake because you, you take what you can get. But uh, have you ever been to a burlesque show? Jesse? No, but I, I imagine what I'm imagining is probably nothing like what it is. What, do you mind if I ask you what you imagine it's like? Okay, well, I'm kind of thinking, um, as you said, slightly thicker women than you would normally see. Um, I'm thinking the music would be older music. Mm -hmm. You'd have those ginormous ostrich-feathered fans. Mm, yeah, yeah. And like the, the lower heel... Uh, almost like a Mary Jane style high heel that they used to wear way back then. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I'm just and and less nudity and more and no poles, but a lot of shaking. You know, I yeah, that exactly. kind of thing. Yeah, this was. Here's what I think happened to burlesque. I've I've spoken to burlesque show uh, on the show before, uh, specifically when in an old Nick Peep show segment, but. <laughs> and I had some burlesque dancers reach out to me and sort of chide me for my comments on it. Um, it's uh, nowadays, purely by my experience, 
Burlesque is very much like belly dancing. It attracts the less attractive women to perform and the less fit as well because it doesn't demand that they be fit. In fact, it actually encourages them not to be fit. Um, so I don't mean stripper fit, but I just mean in general, you know. So belly dancing very much for older ladies is the only way that they can try to be sexy and burlesque is sort of follows suit with, you know, it's okay to have some jiggling. Uh, it, and, you know, it's, it's not bad and it's, it's okay as long as you're okay with, uh, dancing in sync with other people and stuff. I don't know. I, I like the solo burlesque. When you get a couple different people together, it does feel more like belly dancing and more like, uh, women past their prime still trying to be performers and less like a tantalizing sexual act, you know, something just to bring you to the brink. But I, I will have to say, no matter my criticisms, it still got the engine going. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was pretty fucking cool, even as bad as it was. So if you can imagine what I would be like actually seeing what I would imagine would be the perfect burlesque, I would be fucking dying. It would be so amazing. So you have the exact image that I had. Really? <laughs> yeah, exact. <laughs> Uh, that's what I was kind of hoping for. But, well, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't imagining older women. That's uh, one thing. Yeah, that I don't is. either. But what, and here's the thing. When I say older women, I don't – it's weird because I'm an older man and I, I like to revert back to my childhood thing. And, okay, older women are you know between the 40 to 50 range. These ladies were honestly probably between 20 and 35 or maybe 40. So between 20 and 40. So it's not like they were older ladies. It, yeah, but they're just, older for strippers. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they would they would be at the end of their stripping life if they were strippers. And some of these women would never have ever made the cut for a stripping, which is a good thing. I mean, you're, it's not supposed to be stripping. And that's actually what my wife thought it was going to be is stripping, which is funny. It's like, no, why would I drag you to a stripper? Fucking no. <laughs> <laughs> that's not my style, baby. You think you'd know after so long. God damn. Uh, it was a good time though. Like it, what I really liked is it, it, first of all, these women, they had everyone's attention, like absolutely everyone. And you can just say, okay, well, you know, they're naked or partially naked women or women in the process of becoming partially naked. So of course they're going to demand everyone's attention. But even, even the ones with permanent bitch face, you know what I mean? That, that face like looks like you're smelling a fart. I've run across a number of women who have that permanently ingrained on their face. <laughs> I just call it bitch face. Even the women performing with bitch face. I think you should call it fart face because that's just funnier. <laughs> Even fart faces were demanding the attention of every single man, woman present. It didn't matter whether you were into them or not or whether you found them attractive or not, but it was just the motion of it, you know, the, the act of it, the performance of it that was great. They even had this really bad, though I don't think he was trying to be bad, um, sort of uh, announcer for each uh, scene or each performance. Uh, he was trying to tell jokes with this really stupid, I mean, she was playing like she was stupid, but I kind of genuinely think she was really stupid because they were really bad at it. But they're trying to do this sort of comedic back and forth be between each act, you know, allowing the ladies to get dressed up in their new outfit and stuff. There was, I, I gotta say, I'll, I'll stop talking about it after this. But there was this um, dance to that uh, Oh Brother, Where Out There song. Go to sleep, little baby. The one that the three girls sing? Yeah, the sirens. Okay, yep, yep, yep. 
Oh my gosh. <laughs> I fucking die. I loved it so much. It was so good. Like, you know, in like in the show, they were ring they were doing wash in the river, basically these sirens. And they were like ringing out their clothes and stuff. And so obviously during the burlesque uh, performance, they were doing similar motions and kicking their feet up. And it, it was, I got to tell you, ladies, if you ever want to seduce me, <laughs> that is the number one motherfucking way. It was amazing. I was just like, ah, oh, dying. So fucking cool. So you're, uh, you're really turned on by women doing laundry is what I'm getting out of this. <laughs> Waited to steal it down to a chauvin. <laughs> yeah. yeah I actually was. Barefoot, pregnant, and doing the wash. <laughs> it's crazy because I actually kind of dig pregnant girls too. So, oh, oh. fuck. There's something wrong with me. <laughs> oh, I got to go back to 1920s. All right. All right. So, uh, Burlesque Show is awesome. Definitely check it out in your local areas if and you have a local group to do it. Um, and I'm fucking beat right now. So, Here's one thing I was thinking of the other day. Uh, we have had a really dismal winter, and so there's zero snow on the ground at all, um, which kind of sucks because that's one of the things I really loved about growing up in Utah is you always could count on a crazy amount of snow. Um, and so what it's uh, like made me see is all of the dead leaves and pine needles in my front and backyard from all the trees everywhere that is normally hidden by snow. So I don't have to think about it. So I got off my ass yesterday and I was raking up and I exercise every day. Like I work out, I run, I, I'm not a, a slug. I, I don't, I'm not a sedentary person, but this raking fucked me up. <laughs> like my back today is fucking hurting bad. And I'm sitting here raking, like being winded, like trying to like, all you have to do in life is own a little property and you will be healthy enough to live a full life because you will have to take care of the property. And that takes goddamn muscles that you will not realize exist unless you do yard work. Like that is the only way you find these muscles. You can go to a gym and you can work out all you want, but it doesn't hit the muscles that you need to actually perform real life like actions. It is insane fucked me up do you i mean you have a, a ton of property do you do any uh landscaping to it or yard work for it well for the most part my husband takes care of everything but mm -hmm. like tomorrow we're gonna get uh, eight to 12 inches of snow i guess they're calling for so you know i'm gonna be working from home but i'll probably go out a couple of times during the day to shovel the the deck off now the last time i had to shovel a lot of snow yeah, at mm. first your back starts to get tired and you tell yourself, fuck. okay, fuck, don't, fuck. don't, yeah, don't mess with the back. Back st starts hurting, you got to like back off. So I was being real careful not to use my back as much as I could. And it turned out the next day, my ass hurt. <laughs> it's like it's somehow with the, instead of, you know, you're just standing up straight and then twisting, I worked my ass off. <laughs> Ass hurting. That's funny. It, it does. It does hit you hard and fast every single damn time. I don't I just don't understand why. And I mean, you you exercise, right? Yeah. So you, you at least I would think that you would have that covered in some way. But every time it's something new. It's yeah, new... I think, you know, it's when in, when you're when you're lifting weights, you're very much paying attention to how everything feels and how mm -hmm. you're standing and, and breathing and all that kind of crap. 
when you're out shoveling the snow, you're just like, Jesus fucking Christ, I've only gone three feet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For sure. It's oh, crazy. I can barely make it over the rail of the deck. <laughs> <laughs> I have mad respect for people with property that work it daily. Like, mad respect. Absolutely adore it. Um, all right. So, yeah, if you ever want to be healthy, just own some fucking land, people. That's all it takes. Don't live in the city because you will you will die die young. Um, you want to do a little devil's advocate? Talk sure. about pentagonal revision or zomba. All right, let's do that now. In nomine de nostris, Thomas Luciferi Excelsior. In the name of Satan, the ruler of the earth, the king. Though I am an active member, I do not speak for the church of Satan. The opportunity for anyone to live within a total environment of his or her choice, with mandatory adherence to the aesthetic and behavioral standards of same, privately owned, operated, and controlled environments as an alternative to homogenized and polyglot ones. The freedom to insularize oneself within a social, social milieu of personal well-being, an opportunity to feel see and hear that which is most aesthetically pleasing without interference from those who would pollute or detract from that option mm, wow did i stump five. my way through that motherfucker <laughs> you did wonderful <laughs> point five pentagonal revisionism okay so so we've actually spoken to pentagonal revisionism and magister barton barton's uh, sort of update on pentagonal revisionism uh, on nine cents in the past. So I do suggest everyone go to the website, click that search bar and put in pentagonal revisionism. You'll get both episodes coming up and then you can just listen to them at your own pleasure. Um, but in this specifically, because with the sins and with the, uh, even the rules of the earth, uh, with the statements, we've been going back and sort of hitting these one-on-one -on -one and diving a little bit deeper. I'd like to do that with pentagonal revisionism as well. But first, to do a little bit of an overview of what pentagonal revisionism is. So if you go to the website, churchofsatan.com forward slash pentagonal revisionism, you're actually going to find uh, the entire essay list, the entire page with all of it on there, directly uh, quoted from Anton LaVey. And his uh, sort of intro to the five points is along the lines of... Uh, we are not a herd collective that acts as one solid unit. We are very much separate, but he gets asked all the time, well, what, what does Satanism do? What, are, what is the point of Satanism? If you can have some forward motion, uh, what would that mean in the frame of Satanism? That's what pentagonal revisionism is. It is our direct influence on the world around us. And it doesn't matter what you believe socially, uh, uh, politically, as a Satanist, you will always land on these five points because they are isolated ideas for the individual. So you have these other, uh, air quotes, satanic, but really pseudo-satanic groups out there that are saying, well, the Church of Satan isn't doing anything, so we should pick up their slack and we should make some forward movement for Satanism. Well, that's not entirely true. The Church of Satan is very much doing something on the individual level, and with pentagonal revisionism in mind, we are moving forward and have achieved a much more satanic world together. So, uh, with just what you uh, mentioned uh, with the description of point five, 
owning a total environment. So I thought of this when I was raking and getting my ass beat by pine needles and leaves the other day. This is, <laughs> I used to, I used to, I was in the military and before that I lived uh, with a number of roommates in different apartments and, and rented houses, like sort of duplex scenarios. And you're always immediately connected, not only with the people you're rooming with, but also with the people either in the apartment above or below or next to you, or you're constantly being assaulted by others, music, uh, bravado, anger, uh, fights, lovemaking in some cases, which may or may not be so bad depending on the people. Uh, you're always assaulted by others in your personal space. And as a Satanist, we very much like to own and refine and really distill ourselves, making our own environments cater to us and have that sense of aesthetic that really connects with us. You can't do that in a lot of places. And it's definitely even much more challenging if you live in a city versus outside of a city. I would think um, that being living in the country or the suburbs, it's a little more conducive to this because you actually have the space around you and it's not just within your four walls. Jesse, for you, I, I know that you have, and I, I believe you've even mentioned it um, a, a number of years ago, you purchased sort of this dream property home of yours what are some things that you have done to make it your total environment um well i mean actually it was it was almost like a turnkey dream house for us and and by dream house i don't i'm not talking I, i'm not a billionaire <laughs> <laughs> it's not a mansion it's it's you know kind of what you would expect. It's not a starter home. It's the next level up. What everybody buys mm -hmm. the next level up. It's that. It's not anything grand. Um, but it is, I mean, from where we were living before to where we're living now, it's like going from heaven, from, from hell to heaven. Because um, we don't have the noise of the neighbors. And we can make noise ourselves without being overheard by the neighbors. And we can look out the window and see trees and birds and not neighbors. Um, so in that sense, it was, it was turnkey paradise. Um, but in terms of, of the thing of it is, is I don't think I would love this house nearly as much if I wasn't married to the guy I'm married to. Um, it very really? much ties in with our marriage with him in particular. It's like, it's like this house is, is the right place for him to live and therefore the right place for me to live. So making it Interesting. comfortable for him and adding a little quirkiness for me is kind of the right mix for things. Is there anything that you could call out that would be considered quirky for you that, that you've done to, to add some ownership? Um, <laughs> um, hmm, um, <laughs> probably, I, I guess just the taste in furniture. Because I tend, mm -hmm. he would, he would probably, he would probably actually buy that shaker, wicked, plain, totally functional, not at all decorative. Whereas I go for, you know, I want carved wood, I want patterns, I want color. Nice. So, so there's a bit of a mix there. That's exactly what I'm speaking to as well. I mean, we like to think that. Uh, at some point, we're going to be able to just overhaul everything that we own and, and personalize everything in every detail. But the, the reality is, is, 
it costs not just money, which it does and traditionally quite a bit, but it costs a lot of your time and energy. And if you're working a 40 to 80 hour a week job because you're a professional and you're trying to make a better life for yourself, you may be working two jobs, you're not going to have that time. So one thing that I always like to do, and this is something that I did early on when I was rooming with a number of people, in order to make a space my own, maybe it was just uh, the arrangement of some artifacts in a particular corner. Maybe it was, this is my shelf, and I lay things out in it, or I fill it with things that are relevant. Maybe it's my satanic bookshelf. And I put everything in there that is inherently satanic for me. And that is a flavor. And what, what I used to do was I would, I would have my friends come over. I would say, look at this. See this? This is me. And I cannot wait. This sounds super dumb to say out loud. But I would say, uh, and I cannot wait because someday my entire life is going to be like this. Everything around me is going to be like this space right here. So if you ever want to know what Adam is, who Adam is, this is it, this corner, that is me. And that is a feeling that, you know, you're going to yearn for, but it's going to be something you're chasing your whole life and you're building your whole life. And it may not even ever be fully realized, but it is the chasing of it, the act of changing the environment to fit you perfectly, even if it's just a throw pillow at a time. That is, in essence, what point five is all about. It is surrounding yourself with something that is wholly you without yeah. the, the noise of everyone else. And I, I mean, this might sound like it actually goes against point five, the way I, I kind of describe, you know, the house is sort of my husband's and, and I've got these flares to it. But it really, I mean, I want the place to be someplace he's, I want him, so I want the place to be someplace he wants to live. Mm -hmm. Um so it's, it's, I guess in a way, sort of a, a mixture of lesser and greater magic where, you know, I'll buy something that I know he will like, and then he'll surprise me, come home and say, oh, this had you written all over it. It'll be something I totally love. And we just add these things to the house that are, you know, almost everything in here is either it screams him or it screams me. I, I really am ex incredibly excited you, you brought this up in this way. Um, <laughs> with your own life experience, because it speaks to something that I, I'm sent messages about by listeners and that we speak to often on Nine Cents. Um, when people come to my house, I think they're expecting a ritual chamber, <laughs> and what they get is very much not a ritual chamber. You will see little flares of me throughout the house, but I'm the only Satanist in my house, and I I respect and I love the people, my family, my wife and children enough that I'm not going to force my personal aesthetics onto every nook and cranny of my house. So if you know me or if you know anything about Satanism or anything about my quirky Adams family um, personal flair, then you're going to pick up on hints as you walk through my house. But on first glance, it looks like a normal fucking house just with normal people living in it. You're not going to understand unless you know you know i mean it's sort of that, that wink wink nod nod approach to it so to what you're speaking to absolutely loving and respecting those you live with and their tastes 
And finding a way to work in harmony with that, with your own tastes, is essential. Because that's what relationships are all about. And you're not going to always marry a Satanist. In fact, it is incredibly rare that anyone will ever marry a Satanist. Uh, we're so goddamn rare in and of itself. And you never want to try to change someone to be like you. Hopefully, you, you married them or you're in a relationship with them because you love who they are. And that means their tastes. So, this total environment... In, you know, in some people's cases, very much for Jesse and myself, it is about compromise and then our own little touches throughout our domains. And neither um, of us live like the Adams family. <laughs> <laughs> not completely. Not completely. Even though, you know, to my, to my family, they would think it's crazy like that all the time. To everyone else looking in, they're just like, what, well, it's just normal. You're, <laughs> you're, not, you're not wild or crazy at all. So... It's it's relative. Everything is relative. Adam's family, relative. <laughs> I like just my parents showing them that portrait I did in the graveyard. They were slack-jawed and like, before I said anything, they're like, what are you trying to be, the Adam's family? I'm like, ah, oh, see, that's exactly what I was talking about. <laughs> um, exactly. <laughs> and they, like, they raised me in some measure, so. Uh, is there anything that you can imagine uh, would absolutely tear down the idea of having a total environment uh, can compromise take away too much from that that's going to be up to the individual I mean I've thought about you know because everybody's got family issues and I've thought about well what if we end up having to have one of our relatives live here with us mm. for a time and that would be wicked hard for me doesn't even matter which relative it is. There's not a single one of them that would be easy to live with. <laughs> so, I mean, something like that could kind of kill it for me. Yeah. But that's going to be up to the individual. I know there are a lot of people who, you know, they, they take in nieces or nephews or they take in their aging parents or something like that, and it's fine. That, that is the other side of the coin, too, that is very interesting, and in that... Dressing up your space is one thing, but sharing it with others is wholly different, and it does affect the total environment. So just as you're speaking to, you know, if you are taking care of a family member, or if they're temporarily rooming with you because of life, that can ruin, in my opinion, your peace, and then, in line, your total environment. So I think it's important to keep in mind here as well that you know there's no hard fast rules in satanism even the sins themselves are a little tongue-in-cheek um, admitted as per their writing so if you are not currently in it's not a race to the finish if you're not in your total environment if you have not fully created or even realized what that would look like it doesn't fucking matter. <laughs> as long as where you're living, you're happy, where you're hanging your hat is a place of comfort in some way. Even if it is just a fucking shelf for yourself. That's what's important, is that you're recognizing, in my opinion, you're recognizing the need for customizing space and being able to do it in some measure and appreciate it when you have done it in some measure. That's what's really important. And, you know, keep in mind that little green-eyed monster, 
they're going to rear their heads when you see other people's spaces. But think of it, at least for me, I like to think of it in the same way I think of design. When I have to come up with a logo, or if I have to come up with a magazine ad, or a new campaign for a client, I look at existing work that's out there. And, you know, design, I think, is probably eight-tenths stealing someone else's idea, and uh, two-tenths just sort of working. I know I could have reduced that fraction. <laughs> just broke it down, uh, customizing it to your own needs. Uh, there's nothing wrong with appreciating other people's environments, but you do have to put some hint, some note that is truly yours, or you are just copying. You know what I mean? So It's not so bad to copy. It's, it's when you feel like you're copying that it's mm. a problem. Yeah. You know, if you copy something and, and, and you totally dig it, then it's going to work for you, and it doesn't matter that it's a copy. Yeah, I, and I guess when when I mention it, I'm not thinking of the individual connection with the person. I'm thinking of the desired connection. So uh, I think you're absolutely right uh, as long as you're connecting with it truly. What, what, I, what I tend to see, and, and maybe this just is, maybe is a little too telling about me, is that, you know, there, there's there's things and there's people that we really, really dig but they don't necessarily reflect our own tastes. And so because you really, really love it, you yearn to connect with it in some other way, and so you copy it in some measure. In that light, I do not think it's yours. I don't think it's your own. I think you're trying to be something else. And so that's why I say making it your own, just making sure that it connects with you in the way that you're speaking to, Jesse, that it is a reflection of you that you just saw someone else doing Hence, copying it, oh, it's not a big deal. It still connects with you. Um, is there anything else you want to cover with this one? I think we got it. I think that's a pretty good delving into point five of pentagonal revisionism. We will uh, touch the others in some later date, some later time. Let's do a little infernal informant. All righty. Here we go. Hey, what's going on with uh, in front of the Get This is from the Washington Post, dated today, February 1st, uh, by Peter Holly. Title is, After finding a loaded gun in his mother's purse, toddler shoots both parents. And basically what this comes down to is parents and their two kids were in a motel. Uh, the two-year-old was sitting around doing nothing. The toddler, no, the, is it the toddler? Uh, maybe it was a two-year-old. Anyway, one of the kids reaches into mom's purse for her iPod, ad, iPad, some device, grabs a gun instead. Before he knows what he's doing, he's fired two shots, hit both parents non-fatally. Kid freaks out, starts crying. Mom grabs the kid. Dad grabs the phone, calls 911. Everybody survives. So what's the big deal? Everybody lived. <laughs> <laughs> so a, a lot of the reaction to this in the article is, well, you need to keep your guns put up and you need to have locks on them, um, which was always a, f I mean, it, it seems logical unless, of course, the reason why you have a weapon and carrying with you is because you're afraid. 
because you want to use it against people who are trying to attack you. And so in that frame of mind, it makes zero sense to lock up your weapons and to keep them unloaded because that flies in the face of what you're using it for in the first place. Um, <laughs> I've, I've been asked a lot if I own a weapon or if I have a weapon in the ready or if someone was to break in, you know, would I just shoot them or, you know, what have you. I, I always look at it this way. Um, I don't want to kill anyone. I, I don't feel a need to have a loaded weapon under my pillow. Like, I just don't live that way. I don't live... I don't live in the wild fucking West in the 1800s, even though the city I live in is the most violent city for not only a knife and a gun, but crime as in theft in all of Utah, but also the larger West. I mean, Salt Lake City is, is a very, very large crime space. Um, I still don't. <laughs> I don't live that way. I don't live in fear. Do you, do you have a loaded weapon at the ready? Do you mind if I ask? I don't know. I mean, I've got knives, but not right. a loaded gun. I just, I don't understand the draw, especially, and this isn't to pass judgment on those who do. I mean, if you're going to do it, fine. I would honestly, I can't believe you would have it in your purse with your kids, but I can't live in your mindset, so I don't know why you would think it was a good rational reason to do it. I'm more amazed that the toddler could literally fire off around in that fast of, like he had to get his hand around the grip and pull back that trigger and, and have at least some steady hand to magically hit two fucking people. Like that is amazing. Well, I, I mean, I'm, a, I'm, because I'm trying to picture this too, and I'm got, imagining they were all sitting really close together, so that you know, if he fired it in any direction, he's going to hit one of them. Yeah. You know, if they both had their back to him, but he's right behind him on the bed or something like that. But yeah. what bothers me about this article is. It just seems like, okay, if, if it was a kid that accidentally stabbed one of his parents, you wouldn't hear about it. If it was a kid that accidentally poisoned one of his parents, you don't hear about it. You hear about it because it's a gun, and mm, guns are bad, okay? You know, that's that's the message that's trying to get across here, is people who own guns shouldn't own guns. And I'm very right. much a gun-owning advocate kind of thing. Yeah, I, I took away from this not to not on guns, but to keep them secured. Yeah, but the... Granted, these people didn't secure their weapon with little children around. Yes, they are in the wrong. They are at fault. I don't disagree with that. But I don't think that's why this article was published. I think it was published to say guns are bad. And, and guns should never be loaded, you know, and never be at the ready. Because anybody who does that is being irresponsible, even if you live in a high crime area and it's for self-protection. It is interesting because it, it seems like it would be relevant, but I don't recall this article ever saying whether or not she was a concealed carrier. I'm, sure, know, like, I'm sure if she wasn't licensed to, it would have been all over that article. Yeah, um, which then leads me to believe that if, if she wasn't licensed for that, then if the point was to demonize guns, then they would have gone off on that, it seems like. That seems like that would be 
the one thing you can hit really hard. She wasn't even using it properly, so we, she should have our weapons taken away. You know, like so that sort of rant. I'm with you. I'm I'm pro gun ownership uh, as long as they're safe in my opinion as long as they're safely stored if you live in a world where you need to have a loaded weapon on you at all times you're not living in the united states you just don't need it that way in the united states go to fucking middle east go to afghanistan go to iraq you'll need it there you will fucking need it there in america you don't need it i don't know we, we I, I... make a big hype about it like, there's bad guys everywhere because there's so much gun crime. But honestly, it's not that bad. <laughs> it's just not that bad. I, see, it, I it's a sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy, in my opinion. I've grown up with a lot of people who carried loaded weapons all the time. To me, yeah. that's not that big a deal. So do you think this would have... Okay, first of all, let's, I don't want to put too much drama in this. No one was seriously injured. Uh, everyone is healthy, not so much happy. Uh, Child Services currently has ownership of the toddler and they're uh, reviewing, talking with the, the younger daughter who was not hurt in this. But so this isn't a life or death thing. I, I thought this was a great jumping point for a discussion on whether or not you should have a loaded weapon or you should have it secured uh, for safety, whether for your potential enemies or for your family. Um, and so, you know, from that angle, I totally forgot where I was fucking going. I do too much backtracking, and sometimes I forget my fucking point. Um, these uh, the, these parents didn't... They, I mean, I don't know if the safety was turned on and somehow the kid managed to turn that off. That's what I was going to get at, was uh, educating the children. So I, I grew up in an environment where everyone hunted. Every single neighbor hunted. Sh shotguns and uh, 22s were very, very, very common. And they were always loaded because you only used it for hunting, so why would it be a danger? And all the children were educated about how to use a rifle and what it was for, so we never fucked around and played with them. So shit like this never fucking happened. Like, never happened. So that sounds like the same environment you grew up in. Well, no, um, I'm, that's actually the, the environment my husband grew up in, where actually they were trained to hunt at very mm. young ages. Yeah. Um, but no, actually, I didn't touch a firearm until I was probably 21, 22. Wow. But I just knew a lot of people who carried loaded weapons everywhere they went. And they never shot anybody. Yeah. You know, I and never, to be fair, I, the mother's not the one that shot people. <laughs> 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 Yeah, I mean, do you think education would have helped if they would have explained to their children, you oh, know, this is... In, in this case, I think the kids were probably too young. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know that a two-year-old would understand. Because, I mean, when you teach a kid to hunt, what are they, like six when you start, minimally? Yeah, I mean, Cub Scouts, you start firing at ranges, but, and that's, I think, just around there. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, the kids were too young to have been trained. Yeah. The parents were both in the room. I, I think if there, any mistake was made, it would have been safety was off or, you know, purse was left lying next to, lying next to the kid on the bed, unzipped. Some mistake was made, but probably not a huge one. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, if 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 she was a licensed um, um, uh, undercover uh, permit owner, then I I don't think it would have just been sitting in her bag anyway, like you know, available to be pulled out by a toddler. I mean, if it was even in like a harness. You know, like some people carry on their their waist or something like most concealed carriers have it, you know, in some form of a harness. I don't think the toddler would have been able to pull it out at all. And so I definitely don't, in my imagining, think that she was um, knowledgeable about what she was doing. I mean, you know, she might have been a really good shot, but she didn't know anything about taking care of a firearm and toddlers and children at the same time i definitely do think that this was a, a fault of the parents and you know what they'll probably learn from it if they don't want to get shot again <laughs> <laughs> so this is honestly i think this is probably the best example of darwinism in action you're careless with the loaded firearm your kid shoots you in the ass <laughs> <laughs> you live to tell the tale and hopefully you learned a fucking valuable lesson and if you don't well maybe you'll die next time and rid us of your gene pool um potential gene pool so i think that's a kind of this is like the best case scenario of a, a bad scene you know i, I mean yeah i can't it totally imagine is. it being any better because the other kid wasn't hurt and, yeah just the two parents yeah. So I, I, do, I do always find it amazing people that do have to feel like they have to have a loaded weapon with them at all times. It, I just I live so far out of that mindset. Like, I understand if it's a rifle. I don't understand if it's a handgun in your purse. I just don't. Yeah. You must be so afraid of every fucking shadow like that. That's a calorie burner to me. Well, don't, <laughs> you know, like living in that much fear. I mean, don't don't the whole it's in your purse thing, because I mean. I've known people who, have, men always carry it on them, obviously, because yeah. they don't carry purses. Um, women, it seems the bigger the woman, the more easily she can conceal it on her. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but a skinny woman like me, it doesn't matter what I'm wearing, you're going to see it. So mm -hmm. if I wanted to conceal what I'm carrying, it would have to be in my purse. Yeah, that's true. Interesting. Interesting stuff. Well, let's do the second one here. Oh, what is this? Consolidatetimes.com. <laughs> Consolidate that, Times. That world famous newspaper. <laughs> the leader in journalism. California is raising the legal smoking age from 18 to 20. February 1, 2015. Today. Uh, okay, so this is coming from uh, California State Senator Ed Hernandez. Uh, on Thursdays, making the proposal and is being backed by uh, obviously every anti-smoking organization. Uh, there, the, the rationale behind this is that cigarette smoking takes more than 480,000 preventable deaths every year, and because uh, tobacco manufacturers know that. At, this is the proposed thinking that the earlier you hook someone, the more continued revenue you're going to have throughout your uh, lifespan, uh, the better. So they're sort of doing this to say, well, you're not going to get them at 18. You're going to get them at 21. Have you ever smoked um, professionally, <laughs> Jesse? <laughs> have I ever concealed carrying that? <laughs> hey, before I answer that, I've got to make one comment. 
I absolutely mm-hmm. love that the embedded advertisement on this page is a free obituary search. That's just classic. Wait, wait. I I don't see that one. Oh, you don't? No. Oh, maybe it's maybe it's depends on when you refresh the page. Interesting. Okay. Well, anyway, <laughs> that's never mind funny that. though. <laughs> uh, yeah, yes, I did. Uh, I tried smoking. Um, I want to say I was eleven. Eleven? Not eighteen? You didn't wait for the legal age? No, no. <laughs> that's my point. I st- I was in uh, middle school when I started smoking. I smoked for six years and then I stopped. Um, it, it it has nothing to do with the legal limit. It's nothing to do with the legal limit. You don't wait until you're 18 and then decide that it's a good idea to start smoking. It is either a cultural thing or your local social groups thing. Like for me, it was literally the only friend that I had. I was a total fucking loser in, uh, well, I am a total loser, Uh, but it was the only friend I had in middle school and he was a smoker for as long as I knew him. And one day I just said, hey, let me try that. I got high from like smoking my first cigarette. I thought it was amazing. And so I continued to do it for six years. It, it wasn't because there was a cartoon camel. It was because I, it helped me deal with stress. It helped. It gave me a little bit of a high, a little euphoria. And I liked that. And so I, I just don't understand how a grown ass adult can think that one, smokers wait till the legal age, and that's the problem, that once they turn 18, they're like, ooh, they're targeting me with camels and Marlboro men, which I don't even know if they advertise that anymore. But that it's just so ridiculous. No one waited that long. <laughs> no one. And you can still get cigarettes yourself. Like, you can just walk in and buy them because no one fucking cares that much. It's so weird to me. So do you think, uh, Jesse, that 21-year legal limit in California is going to stop those children from smoking? No, no. I mean, do you think it'll even hinder it? No. I don't understand why. Do you remember candy cigarettes? Yeah, I do. It was like bubble gum for those, for, for, for you youngins, for you little whippersnappers listening that don't know what this is. Okay. It was like bubble gum made into a tube to look like a cigarette. It was wrapped in a paper and there was like powdered sugar between the bubble gum and the paper. So you put it in your mouth and you blew and it's the smoke of powdered sugar came out and you looked cool like you were smoking. Mm-hmm. And then you would take the paper off and eat the bubble gum. <laughs> yeah. Now, people said they took those off the market because they said, oh, that's making children think smoking is cool. And it's like, no, Children think smoking is cool and therefore they're buying this shitty bubble gum because it doesn't even taste good. There were way better bubble gums yeah. to eat at the time. <laughs> Bubblicious was my favorite at the time. I was a big red chew kind of kid. I didn't get into big red until I was much later. Ah. The ones I hated though, those freshen up with the squirt in the middle. That oh, was yeah, so that gay. Weird. That was, was so gay. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, talk about wasting taxpayer money. It's it's insane. So they are um, also uh, boycotting commercials related to tobacco and smokeless tobacco items to individuals who are under 21. Ultimately, that's not why people smoke. Uh, people smoke because, again, cultural, social, dealing with stress, or they just, they want to fucking do it. Like it is something, you know, when I grew up, 
it was very much presented as a cool thing to do because all of the bad boys were doing it. So I, I do think that there was some of that in my psyche when I started smoking. But I tell you what, as soon as that euphoria hit me the first cigarette and as soon as I started getting the stress benefits, I, it didn't matter to me whether I looked cool or not. It was just something that I, I wanted to do to help cope with stressful situations. And it helped me for years up until the point that I decided to quit. And then I just went cold turkey and I've never really looked back. So I don't, you know, I say I quit. I mean, like twice a year I'll have a cigar. So I guess I never really fully quit. <laughs> but I don't daily smoke a pack as I used to. Okay, see, I don't know if, if you're the normal one or I'm the normal one, but I never got the chemical fix from it so for not me even the first time no not i mean it, i smoked my kid my friends would kid me because i would go through like a pack a month yeah and it was because you know we'd go out to a bar and when i was at a bar i'd have a cigarette and a beer and that was it yeah and i never wanted to smoke outside that but i mean even when i started when i was 11 or whatever age i was it was always the image yeah. i just wanted to look cool so, I mean, I look at these, I, I don't know who's putting out the ads now, but you've probably seen them where they have like the celebrities and they'll, you know, they'll flash a picture of, I, I can't remember, we'll say Leonardo DiCaprio. I don't know if he's necessarily one of them, but they'll show a picture of him with a cigarette in his mouth and they'll basically say you're an ad for smoking every time you get photographed with a cigarette in your mouth. Now, I'm not sure I agree with shaming celebrities, but I do agree that that's what's promoting smoking amongst the young because until you even if even if you have the chemical reaction like you had until you take your first cigarette you don't know what that chemical reaction is going to be so the only thing that would be driving you would be image yeah 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 or pressure from you know your peers saying hey just try it just try it and then you get hit um yeah, I don't know. I mean, e even if you're only catering to 21-year-olds, that means you're going to have 21-year-old imagery. 21-year-olds are fucking beautiful people. <laughs> that is, yeah, that is right? the most beautiful time of your life. <laughs> that who, That's who not going to stop an 18-year-old. Who looks bad at 21? I know. Even the most horrible, wretched trolls of the earth. At 21, I would fuck them. <laughs> that's just the way it is. That's the, as beautiful as you will ever be. Because it's all downhill from there. <laughs> In some ways or other. <laughs> I, don't know, I, I think I peaked at 24, but yeah, whatever. I got to be honest. I, I I tell this to my wife and, and I see it in myself too. And I hope it's just not a reflection of aging, but I feel like I look so much better now than I ever have in my life. And my wife looks so much better now than she ever has in her life. So it's weird that our our opinions of beauty age with us, you know? I mean, some people do sort of latch on to an age of their life, like, ooh, the 80s, that was beauty, blah. But I, I don't know. I, I, I do genuinely think that I look better than I did when I was a kid, you know, 21. Yeah, I don't know that I look better, but you definitely would rather be around the 44-year-old me than the 24-year-old me. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a much better person to be around now. <laughs> All right. Well, I hope to see what the... Uh, current age of Jesse is like in person someday. Could happen. I think, yeah. I'm looking forward to it. 
Um, all right, well, that's going to do it for Infernal Informant. Let's uh, let's do a little ad for another show really quick, and then let's dive into I Dream of Jesse. All righty. Did you ever want to sell your soul to the devil? Have all your wildest dreams become reality? Or just sign a blood on the dotted line? Of course, not everyone can find the crossroads, so let me make it easy for you. Tune in every month to Nine Cents, and I'll bring you Down to the Crossroads. We'll discuss the blues, the devil, and everything in between. Down to the Crossroads with your host, Aaron Casabaugh. Every month, only on NineCentsPodcast.com. Jesse, what do you want? Well, first, Jesse, I'd, I'd, I'd like you to dress me as master. I, I am your master, after all. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yes, master. That's better. Now look, I've got guests coming over tonight, and I want you to entertain them. What do I look like, a belly dancer? Oh, I, I assume that was part. I mean, the outfit. It, it kind of suggests. You may be used to dance. Listen, the gin put me in the bottle. He forgot to add the preservatives. Now, the outfit may be wrinkle-free, but what in it ain't. You don't like it? Call the number on the bottle and complain. I recently heard about a study done on the perceived popularity of students in a classroom. Students who had not met before were randomly assigned seats in a classroom taught a class, and then asked to report on how popular they perceived other students to be. Within a very short time frame, the perception of a hierarchy had been established. And with that perception came a behavioral modification, where students wanted to be around the students perceived as most popular. It turned out the kids who would be perceived as most popular by their classmates could be predicted by where they sat in the classroom. Let me explain how this works. Imagine a classroom with five rows of five desks. If Sally's in a corner, three people sit near Sally. If Mary's in the center, eight people sit near Mary. Those are eight people Mary can and at some point likely will have some interaction with, as opposed to Sally's three. If you're in this classroom, you react to this otherwise meaningless desk arrangement by perceiving Mary as being more popular than Sally having seen that Mary always has more people around her. It's not that you're unable to explain why Mary has more people around her. It's that you're unable to perceive that your notion of Mary's popularity is based on this. Now add to that the monkey-see, monkey-do aspect of our nature known as social proof. Social proof is that phenomenon where we watch and imitate what other people are doing while trying very hard to give the impression that we're not watching or imitating anyone. It's the idea that if everyone else is behaving a certain way, then that must be the correct way to behave. Now, we don't always do what other people are doing, but when we aren't sure what to do or have other matters on our mind and kind of switch on the autopilot, that's when we default to assuming the behavior of others is what's correct. If eight classmates sit near Mary, but only three sit near Sally, and we don't stop to think about why, then when we're asked who's more popular, some part of our brain hits the idea that surely there's something about Mary. And not wanting to let on that we're just not seeing what the big deal is, we act like we get it, like we also think Mary's cool. Just so our discomfort in not knowing why she's cool won't show. 
Social proof can create mindless cohesion when no one knows what to do and no one wants to show their ignorance. And thus Mary is made to feel like a big shot. The only problem is Mary is a bit dull. The seating arrangement got her the attention of her classmates, but she had no goods to deliver once the spotlight was on. And so people turned away, and other people saw people turning away, and turned away themselves, because all took the social cues that Mary's popularity had disappeared. But let's forget about the crowd of followers for a moment and focus on Mary. You know what happens to a girl like Mary, who gets a taste of being the big shot and then has her popularity stripped? Very likely, she considers herself a victim. She assumes the popularity, the brief popularity she enjoyed, was due to her being, deep down, on the inside, the most awesome individual in existence. The subsequent rejection is assumed to be someone else's fault. Some slut, some show-off, some know-it-all. She deserved the attention. If she stops to ask herself why, she'll be confronted with the realization that she didn't do anything to earn it, and therefore... She must have earned it for something she is, deep down, on the inside. LeVay wrote, Everyone's made to feel like a big shot, whether they can come up with the goods or not. This is so true, it can happen just by seating an otherwise unexceptional child in the middle of a classroom. And that's just one unintentional manifestation of the role. Many other times, we're deliberately led to feel like big shots. We want to feel like big shots, and advertisers love us for this. I'm reminded of Al Pacino's character in the movie The Devil's Advocate, telling us vanity is his favorite sin. It motivates. Now, I've got three different Gmail accounts. One exists solely for when I want to buy something online and need an email address to complete the purchase. About once a week, I go in and delete all the email from this account. It's all exclusive offers and points to redeem, member benefits, secret sales, and recommendations compiled just for me based on my unique preferences. Oh yeah, I've hit the big time, baby. Amazon is courting me. And while these blatant attempts to curry favor seem as likely to persuade as pleas from a Nigerian prince needing to transfer some funds, people wouldn't do it if it didn't work at least some of the time. Vanity motivates. Sometimes you're made to feel like a big shot for your own good. Think of how many kids are called good boys or girls when they're being potty trained. There's absolutely no harm intended there. Nor is there any when a friend congratulates you on meeting one of your goals. When an employer does it, watch out. Say there was some unpleasant task that needed doing. You didn't want to do it. You don't want to get stuck doing it again in the future. But you did it because you're a professional and the job needed to get done. Next thing you know, the boss is publicly praising you for what a great job you did. This is the boss trying to play on your vanity to get you to do something you don't want to do. If you need the praise badly enough, you will succumb. You're going to be made to feel like a big shot by many people. Some will just be following the lead of others, using social proof and assuming any popularity you gain is justified. Some will be working your vanity to try to sell you something. Some will be preying off your biological craving for status in order to influence your behavior. And some will see you as a stepping stone to reach the inner circle of someone else. Knowing someone powerful gives you the power of influence and introduction. Now I'm not going to suggest that you just say no to anyone using you for your connections. I'm suggesting you recognize it for what it is and get your fair share in the arrangement. Penn Jillette once addressed at the question of secrecy on the Penn & Teller magic show, 
He said their staff does not sign non-disclosure agreements. Instead, they're encouraged to at least get a blowjob out of it before they reveal how a trick is done. <laughs> know the value of what you're providing and make it a fair trade. It's easy enough to fall victim to this need for status, and thus I will remind you again of LeVay's words. Everyone, everyone's made to feel like a big shot, whether they can come up with the goods or not. The key to not falling for the big shot delusion is knowing whether or not you've come up with the goods. There's an article on Cracked.com called Six Harsh, Six Harsh Truths That Will Make You a Better Person. It was written by David Wong and was published over two years ago, and yet I still see people promoting it. It's that good. I'll put a link in the transcript for this episode. The article addresses the fact that people find you interesting and valuable based on what you do, not who you are deep down on the inside where you're secretly the most awesome individual in existence. Forget deep down. What can you do? This calls to mind a scene from the TV series Sherlock, a sort of reboot of the characters of Sir Arthur, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. In this scene, Holmes is describing a case where, while Holmes was puzzling out the clues, Watson saved a man's life. It's a rare, poignant moment in which Holmes is being both honest and kind. He tells his listeners that John Watson is, quote, the best and bravest man I know, and on top of that, he actually knows how to do stuff, unquote. Forget deep down, what can you do? People who come up with the goods do things for other people. They entertain other people. They raise their children. They create smartphone technology. They provide companionship for aging parents. They do science. They do something. Hell, even those Amazon advertisers and Nigerian princes know how to do something. They know how to make us feel like big shots or how to make us feel like today's our lucky day. They deserve every penny they earn. You fell for it, and it's because you wanted or needed that feeling. Telling people what they want to hear can be a high-paying gig. If someone's making you feel like a big shot, ask yourself, what are you doing for them? Are you buying something of theirs as a result of their praise? If so, you're not a big shot, you're a customer. Are you modifying your behavior as a result of their praise? If so, you're not a big shot, you're a pawn. Are you introducing them to friends of yours that they were just dying to meet? If so, you're not a big shot. You're a doormat. Everyone's made to feel like a big shot. The cruelest joke is when our loved ones pump us up. We're made to feel like big shots by those who adore us. There is truly no malice in this, just lack of perspective. Most of our mothers will see that deep down on the inside we're secretly the most awesome individuals in existence. Thank your mom for that and carp compartmentalize that bullshit a mother's praise is invaluable when you're young and learning to go potty but it turns to poison as you age your sweet dear mom's standards for your achievement won't cut it with anyone else the cracked article which you really should read advises us all to do something anything for long enough that we can do it well and therefore use it to be of service to others that's damn good advice I'm going to add to it and say that Consider all praise. Consider every instance when you're made to feel like a big shot and ask, what did I do to trigger this praise? You did something. You may have sacrificed time with your family to finish an unpleasant task at work, or you may have cooked a really juicy steak that you and your partner enjoyed together. You did something. Identify what you did and ask yourself, was this something I've been working at long enough that I know that I can do it well? Was this something I wanted to do? Was this something meaningful to me? 
If the praise was for something you worked at, something you wanted to do, that had personal meaning for you, then you have every right to feel like a big shot. But you probably won't. That's the funny thing about doing things that are personally meaningful and effortful and getting good at them. The praise you receive might make for constructive feedback, it might open doors or build relationships, but it won't inflate your ego. By the time you get good at something, you gain the modesty of understanding your limitations. And hitting your own self-defined goals matters far more than being told you're the most awesome individual in existence by someone else's standards. Everyone's made to feel like a big shot, but actually, whether you delivered the goods or not, it's probably best to just smile, say thank you, and get back to what you love doing. Very, very nice. I love this I Dream of Jesse segment. That, I mean, this specific one, I absolutely adore. This is something that I, I deal with on a fucking daily basis. As, as a designer, you're often faced with people who expect you want to be praised for everything you do and that's like you couldn't be further from the truth i don't it's, it even reminds me of pulp fiction i don't need you to tell me how good my fucking coffee is i know how good my fucking <laughs> coffee is i buy the fucking coffee and i know what i'm and, and just to put a fine point on what you're saying i know how good i am and more importantly how bad i am at things i don't need you to tell me when it's like really great whenever i hear great job you're doing wonderful one of a kind oh you know pat on the back it's always guarded like i'm always like uh all right all right you can stop sucking my dick i don't <laughs> I, I didn't do it for that i don't need you to tell me that i would actually prefer constructive criticism to a hearty congratulations because i can actually use that like i <laughs> I can use that to grow and get better at what I do. But you telling me I did a good job does zero. It's not. It's a zero for me. Like it, it doesn't help me in any way at all. And like I see this all the time when I'm raising my children, because I see their friends coming over and them thinking that everything they do is perfection. And every time I criticize them, they look at me as if I was like a bug, and they didn't understand what they were looking at. Like, how could you tell me what I just did isn't perfect? What is, that, that's not normal. <laughs> like, we're, it's, it's, we're living in an age where, I mean, and this was, I say age, which in my mind makes you think of maybe a decade or two. But this is something that's been going on for a generation or two. Humanity you know, is way, doomed. Doomed. I, right? Like, unless we can seriously stop pretending like we are... The greatest, and you know what? People blame uh, the popularity of reality TV or the media or X. Blame whatever you want. I think, honestly, it's the parents. I, I think it all comes from the parents and shitty parenting. <laughs> if you teach your kids that everything they do is wonderful, they're going to expect that. It, it's just shocking. Even when I was in the military, I ran into people like this. I had a soldier. <laughs> oh, fuck. Uh, this kid's name was Barrett. We go by last names. This kid was horrible. Absolutely horrible. Didn't know how to take correction or criticism. Uh, didn't understand it at all. Because he came from a place of, I am, I'm special. What Everything I do is good. And you're telling me it's not? And he he couldn't get over that hump of 
okay, well, maybe everything I do isn't special and maybe I can learn. I think it's much more important, much more important to teach how to deal with constructive criticism and how to grow from that. And and instead of looking for a hearty congratulations, looking for that criticism, I think we would all be so much better. So for you, uh, speaking to your, um, your uh, segment, your essay here, Jesse, what is it that you love doing that you love to be criticized for rather than congratulated for or praised for? Well, I mean, and this sounds wicked boring, you know, like I get that, but I recently, like within the last year, took on a job in management. Mm-hmm. So that's new to me. Well, it's not, it, I mean, I've done it before, but never for, for long lengths of time and never to the extent, because I'm like actually reorganizing the whole department and retraining Ooh. everybody. And it's kind of a big undertaking. Um, so yeah, I, I admittedly, I know where I know where we are today and I know where we want to go, but I don't know how to get there. Mm-hmm. So I'm constantly running things, not just by my boss, but by every single manager in the company that I interact with. And it's like, does this make sense? Would you do this? Would you phrase it like this? Should I write this? Should I not write this? Should I just say it? <laughs> <laughs> and, and things like that. And they've been really cool about it. So, and the fact that they've been really cool about it, you know, the fact that I don't have, I mean, there's a couple of people in the company, but for the most part, I'm not getting a bunch of people saying, yeah, don't worry about it. You're doing a great job. You're doing because that wouldn't do me any good. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I get I, I put something by somebody and say, OK, I've written out this policy. Does this look good? And they'll read it over and say, well, it makes sense. But I wouldn't put this in writing, not this one sentence. And they'll explain to me why. And it's like, oh, OK, that's a pitfall you fell into. And you just stopped me from falling into the same one. Thank you. Nice. That's great. I think um, any, honestly, any form of mentorship, but just the idea of mentorship itself is lost. It's like a lost art. Like everyone thinks that they can just get to the end themselves. And so they never look to those who have gone before them. Or if you've gone there before you, you don't want to help those coming behind you. I think mentorship is incredibly important in virtually every single industry there is. And it's always really, really nice when you can run into someone that will give you a little bit of their own experience, uh, specifically to what you're speaking to, Jesse. Um, Wonderful job. I I think this entire segment was just fantastic. Thank you. Where can the good folks listening find out a little bit more and read the transcript and click through the links that you mentioned uh, to the article online? This will be posted on my blog, which is drafts from a satanic windbag wordpress.com they can also email me at idojesse at gmail.com and i'm on facebook as jesse twain oh and i'm on twitter as damned at damned lucky i'm all over the place you is everywhere girl (laughs) (laughs) all right uh definitely guys if jesse's telling you to read the article Read the fucking article. Oh my God, it's read gonna... the article. It's that good. It really is. <laughs> it's going to do you some good. She actually posted it already on um, Nine Senses' Facebook page. So uh, if you haven't seen it there yet, go check out their blog. Uh, but you really should check out her blog anyway. Um, you know what, Jesse? I think that's going to do it for another show. Woohoo. Like Art. Aw. No, now I feel. <laughs> Damn it. This is a chore now. Um, 
Well, we do hope that you, the audience, have enjoyed it, and we would love to hear from you. Visit the website 9centspodcast.com or send your correspondence to info at 9centspodcast.com. Let us know of any suggestions, critiques, corrections, or general comments you might have. We do really appreciate it when you do communicate with us. Uh, it's nice knowing we're not shouting at a wall, <laughs> that there's other people on that other side of that wall that are falling over laughing when they're exercising. I love hearing those stories, by the way. You can visit the Satanet, Facebook, Google Plus, Twitter, or MySpace page for nine cents and get updated on weekly topics. Download the shows Monday via the RSS feed found at ninecentspodcast.com. We're also on Last.fm, Stitcher, and YouTube, so you can look for us there. Give us comments, give us ratings in each of those places. It is important. And you can subscribe to Nine Cents via iTunes by searching Nine Cents. Uh, if you'd like to learn more about the Church of Satan, visit churchofsatan.com. And remember, the only way we're going to continue doing this thing, this thing being Nine Cents, is if you continue to communicate with us and you continue to share it with other people. Let's build this podcast together, people. Help spread the word. Once again, thank you for joining me. And as always, I'm your host, Adam Campbell, being joined by... Jesse. The very beautiful Jesse, who I someday wish to set my eyes on. Could happen. Could happen. Well, until then and until next week, hail Satan. Hail Satan.